Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. We're well into our first season, and we want to thank you all for your support thus far. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how most of our pressing topics today can still remain so deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and look forward to you joining us each week. Without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Ronald Bond. Now, do you go by Ron or Ronald? Well, I've been Ron for a while, so I'll go by Ron. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ron. Well, um, where are you? Uh, uh, where are we talking to you uh, today from? I am in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the Winfield section of Philadelphia. Now, now, what does that mean to folks who aren't familiar with Philly? Well, um, this, I guess the most famous thing near me is uh, St. Joseph University, which is a couple blocks away. Um, it's near the main line, um, near the border of Philadelphia and uh, the infamous main line. Um, so people who know Philadelphia know the neighborhoods a lot by the colleges that are nearby. Mm. So, uh, St. Joe's is the nearest college. Got it. That's great. Now, uh, we're going to get to where you are today, but we're going to start all the way at the beginning. So uh, when I say all the way, I'm talking, where were you born? I was born in, in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is a town that's about uh, 10 miles south of the Philadelphia airport. Uh, most airplanes that fly into Philadelphia fly up the Delaware River or over the Delaware River. Uh, and Chester's located uh, just south of uh, Philadelphia on the Delaware River. Gotcha. Now, what's that neighborhood like? What's the, the energy, at least when you were growing up, what do you remember? The energy when I was growing up is significantly different than the energy that well, let's contrast it. <laughs> yes. Um, when I grew up, uh, it was, um, I grew up just around the Second World War. And uh, Chester was an industrial town. Um, it had many, many, many industries. It must have had nearby at least four oil refineries, companies that people don't even know about today. Sinclair, Texaco, Gulf, Atlantic, and the biggest refinery was the Sunoco or Sun Oil. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also are the home of Scott Tissue and Scott Paper, now, okay. now owned by Kimberly Clark. Uh, there was a Ford uh, assembly plant there. There were a number of steel mills uh, that provided the steel for the ships that were in a shipyard known as Sun Shipyard, owned by the same family that owned the Sunoco oil refinery. Um, and uh, there were manufacturers of uh, the anchors and chains that went on those ships. Uh, nearby was Baldwin Lima Hamilton, the manufacturer of the locomotives that pulled the Pennsylvania Railroad trains up and down the track. And um, there were water fountain manufacturers, welding shield manufacturers, uh, there was Congolium floor covering uh, nearby. There was American Viscos, which was one of the early producers of nylon and rayon at the time. There was a rubber plant. Um, well, you name it, it was probably there. Yeah, lots, lots of industry. Now, number one, you have a great recollection of all of these places. How, how are they so kind of vibrant? You can just kind of rattle them off at a list. Well, most of the refineries are gone. Um, I went past uh, just about a week ago. Uh, American Visco still has a plant or a, some, uh, some kind of facility down in the neighboring town known as Marcus Hook. Um, the refineries have changed names. Uh, Sunoil is still there, but it has a, a, a new name, and I don't remember what it is. Sinclair is gone. Texaco is gone. I mean, you don't even see their signs along the road anymore. Uh, Scott Tissue is still there. It is now owned by Kimberly Clark. Uh, the anchor and chain um, manufacturer is gone. The shipyard is closed. Uh, it's been replaced by a prison and, mm -hmm. and a casino. Um, the um, 
trying to think of what else. To, I don't think uh, the water fountain manufacturer and fiber metals is still there anymore. The Ford assembly plant is gone. Most of that stuff is gone. Uh, now, did that get kind of outsourced someplace else? Did those businesses just fail? I mean, you know, that's a lot. We don't need to go individually. But in general, what kind of transformed uh, from that kind of thriving set of industry to today? I don't think the businesses failed. I think the businesses were transferred to another country. Mm. Uh, I think um, a new group of business persons came along and the management teams were self-serving and decided they could make a bundle of money by taking the jobs away from the people who in the United States needed those jobs. And because of that, the people that live in the city of Chester right now are some of the poorest people in the country. Wow. When, when I was a kid, you could quit one job uh, and, and go out and, and find another one within an hour. Uh, mm-hmm. it's just, in fact, I, a couple other industries just came to mind. Westinghouse was a nearby industry. Lester Pianos was another industry. And then mm-hmm. we, were, we were close to Philadelphia. There were men who actually worked in two different shipyards in one day. They would work, wow. they would work in Sunship in the morning and go between four and 11, get some sleep and then drive over to New Jersey and work at New York shipyard, which was in Camden. Goodness. Okay. Uh, so people, people could find jobs when I was yeah. here. Wow. Now I, I want to come back to can the industry in a moment, but, um, Let's go back to your house. So, um, siblings, uh, what, what's the, ha- the, ha- the environment in the home you grew up in? I grew up in a house um, that was a two-story, three-bedroom twin uh, that um, had running water. Uh, and I say that because we had neighbors that did not have running water. Mm, okay. Uh, we had a bathtub and we had a washbowl and we had a flushing toilet and it was on the second floor. Hmm. A lot of houses, as they move from the outhouse to in the house, would have um, their bathrooms put on the first floor adjacent to the kitchen because that's where the plumbing was. Mm-hmm. So uh, our house was a brick, um, two-story twin, um, and uh, we had a small yard. Um, and we had a brick pavement in front of the house with a cobblestone edging and a hairpin fence. Uh, that, that means something to some people, but a hairpin, hairpin fence is something that people are actually stealing in the city of Philadelphia. Right wow. Now. Because uh, of the raw materials? Because of the design and, uh-huh. and, and they're putting it in front of their house. To, oh, they're just, they're not trying to like melt it down. They're trying to take this and give it to someone else. Put it in their house. Yeah, a combination of both. Um, the interesting thing about living in my house was um, <laughs> we owned it. Most mm-hmm. of my neighbors, I would say 85% of my neighbors were renting. Mm. The people in the other half of the twin owned their house as well. How did your family uh, come to own the house? That I don't know. And um, I, I know it was bought around 1927 and they paid something like, or maybe earlier, uh, but they paid less than $2,000 for it. Wow. <laughs> um, That's fascinating. The um, interesting thing about it was from my, it belonged to my great, my great grandmother um, who raised my father. And um, my great grandmother had three children, uh, a son and two daughters, um, one of which was my grandmother who passed during the 1917-18 epidemic. Mm. Wow. My father was uh, therefore raised by my Mm -hmm. great-grandmother. And so when my great-grandmother passed, the the remaining heirs were uh, my father's uncle and my father. And my father had been living there, had been raised by his great by his grandmother and so there was a little family issue about ownership and uh, the courts decided that my father's uncle and my father should share the house so my father's uncle shared one of the bedrooms in the three-bedroom house 
Oh, so you split it. That's how you figured it out. I didn't split it because, I mean, there were three bedrooms. You got a third okay. of the sleeping spaces. You got a portion. In the meantime, uh, I had four brothers. Ah, so it's pretty packed in there. Uh, the five of us shared a bedroom. Um, and uh, that was done with two bunk beds and one folding top. Mm-hmm. And my father had the other bedroom. So life was kind of interesting. It was crowded. And yeah. It was exciting. Um and um, we managed to um, have a great time. Uh, we had a backyard. We could play in the yard. Uh, we did a lot of crazy things. Um, in fact, um, as I reflect, we had a patio. Um, mm-hmm. I had no idea what a patio was until I bought a house, uh, which was in the, what, I guess in, in the 80s? And no, in the mid-70s when I bought a house, I realized what a patio was. But we had a patio because the twin homes were built with a complete brick walkway around the perimeter of the houses. Mm. So the brick that was in the front was a brick that was in what we call the alleyway. And then an alleyway led to the brick patio in the back. Uh, We had a couple of trees, which we destroyed by climbing. Um, But um, in our house, it was kind of exciting. At dinner time, we all sat at the dinner table together. Um, my father constructed a bench so that three of us could sit on one side of the table. Oh, there you go. And as the kids were, because some of the kids were smaller, the high chair was at one end of the table. My father was at the other end of the table. And my older brother and mother sat on the other side of the table. But it was crowded. Um, I remember going from a cast iron cook stove, wood fired, coal fired stove, to a, a four burner eye-level oven, which stood on legs that was uh, porcelain covered. We had, uh, and, I, and I think that's kind of unique because people thought when you bought one of these modern houses and got an eye-level oven, you, you, you had something special. You made it. <laughs> yeah. So at any rate, um, we had a kitchen. And the kitchen in those days, I mean, I, most people probably didn't pay any attention to it. The kitchen was like a shed. It was an extension off of the brick part of the house. Wow. So from the dining room forward to the living room, uh, to the front of the house was brick. And the wall of the dining room that was brick went up to form the wall of the the bathroom on the second floor. So all of the living stuff was in the front. And so as the kitchens, which was where this wood-fired stove was, was kind Mm -hmm. of outside the house with a cover. For safety. Now, was that originally done like that, or was it an add-on that came on later? That's the way both of the houses were. Uh, okay. So the houses were neat. We had a an enclosed porch, um, and that enclosed porch must have had something like 108 small window panes on it. Oh, wow. Which we had to wash <laughs> with vinegar and water and newspaper. There you go. Um, and on the inside of that, that, we had what was known as a picture window in modern times. We had a huge single window in front of the house. We had two sets of stairs. Uh, so when you walked off of the porch, you walked into a vestibule. So that's three doors you go to before you're inside the house. Mm-hmm. And once you got in the side of the house, there was a hallway. Um, and you could walk down that hallway and go directly to the dining room. And to your left, there were two other rooms, the living room and the sitting room, or the parlor and the sitting room. Mm-hmm. There, was okay. like, there were like two living rooms, the dining, gotcha. dining room and then that kitchen. But between the sitting room and the dining room was another set of steps. Okay. And both set of steps met at the top. When we didn't have anything else to do, we would smack each other and run up the steps. <laughs> and imagine a circle up the steps, down. Yeah, steps. up and down, up and down. And, the, and one set of steps had a, had a railing. So you'd go up the steps, go to the other slide. side, slide down. So we didn't it sounds have, like we didn't have TVs. We didn't have TVs. We didn't have telephones. So our fun was created. Yeah. Um, now it's just fascinating listening to some of the details on how that house was built and how you guys lived in it. Was that uh, kind of a common uh, design and structure for a lot of the houses in the neighborhood? No. Um, the houses. Let's see. The, house, the building next to us was an apartment building. It was. T- three stories high. Uh, it was attached to another apartment building that had a corner store at the bottom of it. Uh, if you go in the other direction, there was a 
a house that um, had a concrete porch that was open. Uh, they did. Oh, our house had central heating. We had a heat, oh, wow. a big heater, coal fired heater in the in the basement. Uh, gravity fed heat, so there was a grate in the floor in the living room. The neighbors in, in the in the house two doors over had no heater, um, so they heated their house. Wow, Chester, that seems like that get cold sometimes. Well, they heated the house with kerosene. Ah. And um, now I'm trying to give you the difference between the two. They had a backyard yeah. as well, but they, their house was not as, I, I don't know whether this is the right word or not, but it wasn't as luxurious as ours. The next to that, okay. store with an apartment above it. The next to that was a twin house that sat back a little bit. Uh, but in terms of architectural design, none of the houses actually matched ours. They were separate. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, and the other thing is the next half block, three quarters of a block or so, were rows of rental houses. Everybody was renting. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of different types of structures. Now, what, what, who were your neighbors? Like, who, who did, you know, growing up, what type of folks did you live around? Everybody worked and everybody worked somewhere. So they, um, the people next door to us were the Browns, uh, George and Annie Brown. They were Methodist people. They went to the Methodist church in the neighborhood, uh, very religious, but they were also our uh, surrogate parents. Mm. So Mr. and Mrs. Brown were the people who babysat us without, without coming into our house. And when they did come to the house, uh, Mrs. Brown, for example, could hear my brothers and I running up and down the steps and, or hear us screaming and hollering, and when she thought she had had enough, she would come over and knock on the door and tell one of us to go in the yard, get a switch off the tree, bring it in, she'd whack us on the legs. She'd meet my mother at the door when we came home, when she came home, and then we'd get whacked again. Um, wow. How, how many brothers again? There were five of us. Actually, there were six, and the youngest one died after three months of life. So there were six of us, but only five of us really residing in the house. Um, we, we had... I lived in a village, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people across the street who had their eyes on me all the time. The people across the street who had children were my surrogate parents, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, we had um, various levels of income among in the, in the black in an all-black community. Um, I, I love to tell people the story that all four of my brothers went to college, Two of us graduated in my low-income black neighborhood. There are, let's see, Ralph Rice, Charles Oakley, uh, Berkeley. There are at least five college graduates in the block, in the block. Mm -hmm. I'm talking from the late 30s, early 40s. Um, So as poor as we were, everybody in that village was headed in the the same direction. Yeah, Uh, they they got that Right. I went to, uh, you'll probably be excited about this, but I went to a church across the street from my house, which was Calvary Baptist Church, uh, which mm-hmm. is where you know about Calvary Baptist Church? Yeah, t- tell us more. Uh, that's a church where Martin Luther King Jr. did his internship mm-hmm. under the tutelage of uh, J. Pius Barber, who was okay. Didn't know that. a friend of, of his father. So when I went to Sunday school, I went to the Baptist Sunday school, and on Sundays, it was nothing unusual to see Martin Luther King walking around um, because he went to Crozier Theological Seminary, which was located in Chester. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, for blocks, I had a had a paper route. I had about 100, 110 customers walking paper route, carried the papers in a bag on my shoulder. And um, all of those people knew me. Um and, and like I said, it was a real village. The other thing was um, um, my father was a, a pretty well-known individual in the community. He was very active in community uh, service and had been uh, the first African-American basketball player to play varsity basketball at the high school. Uh-huh. The, the entire city was ethnically divided. So the blacks lived in the neighborhood. The Ukrainians lived in a neighborhood. The Polish people lived in a neighborhood. The Italian people lived in a neighborhood. Uh, the Jewish people lived in a neighborhood. And the Christian white folks from whatever ethnicity 
among white people um, lived in the other sections of the city. There were, I mean, there were some racial problems at times. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and um, my, my father being an athlete and, and being active in the community, um, most of the people knew me. Um, we had our own cops. We had black cops. Black cops patrolled the black neighborhood. They knew me. They knew my father. Uh, so getting in trouble uh, as a young boy um, and, and my brothers and I, we couldn't get away with too much. I was fortunate enough to have a grandmother who taught at my elementary school. All of her social circle were the educators. We would see our teachers in church. We would see our teachers in the stores in our community. Um, all my teachers in elementary school and junior high school were black. Um, when I was eight years old, um, my mother didn't like the physical plant conditions at my elementary school, and she didn't like the practice of the school district to send used books to our school and replace those books with new books in the white schools. Mm-hmm. And then in that apartment building that was next door to me lived two white girls, and those white girls did not go to school with me. They went to another school a few blocks further away. So this basically the school system was segregated and my mother didn't. Even though the people didn't live that far from each other. That's right. And they and didn't live that far from some of the schools. But hmm. uh, uh, there were some African-Americans who lived at, in a near school in a predominantly white neighborhood that had to walk to the black neighborhood to go to school. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, my mother and a couple of other mothers who were in the Parent Teachers Association didn't like what was going on. So they created a boycott and boycotted the public schools uh, throughout the city, um, getting the whole black community to support it. Um, and uh, that boycott went from May of 1946 until March of 1947. Um, I was telling Brian the other day, I have no idea what I did during that time, but I enjoyed not being in school. <laughs> you're living you're getting some type of real world education I have pictures and documents from that boycott uh, and some of the intelligent things that my parents and, and the other mothers and, and, and fathers did to uh, succeed with that boycott I mean I have a map that my father used to show where the white schools were and show actual addresses of the black kids who lived across the street or down the street and show the path that they had to take to get to the black schools. Uh, I have copies of applications for um, transfers by these black kids to go to the white school, mailed to the school board so that the school board could reject it so that they would have evidence of the segregation to take into court. I've got copies of documents where my parents were called to court, um, but they succeeded. This was in 1946. Um, you know, they also succeeded in making it possible for African-American teachers to go to the high school and uh, and to teach in the white schools. It's a, strange, right. it's a strange picture because the high school, there's never been more than one high school in the city. So for as long as the schools were segregated, all of the black and white kids went to high school at the same location. Hmm. Okay. And what was, is that a funding issue or what was the rationale for there being these separate, you know, K through eight? Just racial segregation. Mm. Wow. Wasn't funding, but it was funding because as I indicated earlier, we got the used books. I could get a book and my history book might have little Sean Smith and, 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 and Shirley love each other scribbled mm. on the page or maybe the page is missing. And when that book got to my school, it was replaced in a white school with a new book. Ah. I would get, I, they would have, we would have desks in our school that would have Johnny and Shirley carved into it. Okay. Which for us was a replacement desk. And we knew that it came from the Weatherill school on the other side of town. That's fascinating. Oh. And so your parents were able to kind of, uh, to, to make this change. Was that at the time, something that, um, was was um, I guess not commonplace, and and they really had to put up you know the 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 effort and the fight to see this through. You said that happened, you know, it lasted for months. 
It lasted for months, but it was a, it was a boycott. It was a successful boycott. Not much history about it. You don't hear it on the national news. Um, the results didn't last long either, because in 1964 they had another school boycott. But yeah. um, yes, it was very unusual uh, for an African American group to um, bring up an issue like that and go to court and win. Now, so did they? So they had this moment where they were able to, you know, they were successful. And it sounds like at some point, some of these behaviors reverted. Um, what was that just generationally, you know, by you got, by the time you got to the sixties, um, the same parents weren't there or like, you know, wh- why, why did things kind of, um, you know, kind of go back to the, the way they were at some point? It's a combination of things. I mean, the politics had not changed. Chester was a town that was controlled by the Republican party. The county that it, was in was controlled by the Republican Party. They wrote the rules and the regulations, and they did what they want. Um, when when I was um, an elementary school student, there was one African American person in the town that was a friend of the party. He was given that responsibility at the party that you had to go to in order to get a teaching job. Mm. Okay, so every African American teacher had gotten approval of this one individual. There were African Americans on the school board. They were handpicked by the party. And they basically were window dressing. Wow. Right. So, um, I mean, the interesting thing is you get the same stuff going on right now. Absolutely. Um, but at any rate, that battle uh, went uh, quite well. I saw my first white teacher. His name was uh, Edward Demarski. Nice guy, was an instrumental instructor who went from school to school teaching musical instruments. By the time I got to high school, about, let's see, I was a third grade. So six years later, he had managed to become a, a permanent stationary teacher at the high school. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, you know, your, with your father being an athlete and then getting that exposure um, to kind of band uh, early on, how did that impact some of your interests once you got to high school? Well, my father being a basketball player, we did a lot of dribbling in the alley. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we had a lot of, I guess, family competition. Uh, I decided to let my brother have basketball and I would do some other things. So I didn't play basketball. My brother got, he, he dev- uh, devoted a lot of time to becoming a basketball player, won himself a, a college scholarship. So he played varsity basketball, was a captain of the team at Morgan State University down in Maryland. Yeah. My what'd you do? I didn't. No, I was. I don't know. I just decided to do other things. Did something. Or the other things. I um, I learned to sing in junior high school. We had a great uh, junior high school music teacher who had us singing eight part harmony. Um, and um, I sang in in the mixed chorus in junior high school, and then went ahead and sang in the. Uh, I did not sing in the choir, but I had learned to play, started learning to play the drums when I was in uh, elementary school, and I became a member of the band in high school. Um, it got me to places that um, I could go, I mean, I could go to the basketball games and the football games, and I didn't have to pay, and I also didn't have to work as hard. <laughs> there you go. So you got the social benefits. Yeah, so I got the social benefit, and I didn't get banged around as much. Um, my younger brother's... Um, uh, they're three younger than me. Uh, two of them played football, and the youngest, I'm not sure what he did. The interesting thing is, you know, some of the things when you – I left home when I was 17 um, mm. to go to college. My parents told us that there was no choice. Uh, we were going to go to college. Um, and the education that we got, segregated as it was, was absolutely remarkable. I mean, it was just the best um, – you could have our, our teachers, the African-American teachers were devoted to us. Our parents were devoted to us um, in spite of what we did not have and what we should have had to make our education better. Uh, by the time we got to high school, we were prepared to be there. Um, and so um, they had these different academic tracks um, that went from junior high school to, to high school. Uh, you were either college preparatory uh, which were the, I guess, the higher achieving academic students, and any other higher achieving academic students were those who were on the commercial track, which was usually where they pushed most of the women. The girls went mm. in commercial because they were learning how to be bookkeepers and accountants and secretaries. Um, and then they had a, 
industrial arts track where they pushed the boys who were not interested in going to college into either electronics or carpentry or, or sheet metal or auto mechanics and electricity. Um, so, you know, by the time you got to the ninth grade, you were picking a truck. So the other thing personally was by the time I got to high school, most of the teachers who had been raised in, in, in the city of Chester were people who knew my parents, uh -huh. which made it a little difficult to kind of try to get away with anything. Well, got my eye on you. Yeah, I got my eye on you. I'll, I'll call your mom and dad. Uh, so it was a little difficult, but it was fun. The social experience that I had, first of all, in my house, you learn to love and to protect each other. Uh, mm -hmm. You learn to share, uh, even in, if you didn't want to. Uh, and, and you learn how to deal with being poor and, and maintaining your pride. Um, my mom used to always say, your clothes may be raggedy, but just make sure they're clean. Uh, yeah. I remember once, um, funny story, I, was, I, I had a date. I was going to see some young lady when I was in junior high school, and I went upstairs to get dressed to, to, to get a pair of pants and found out that my brother had my pants. So you go through those kinds of experiences. You learn to share and protect each other. Um, you fuss and you fight. Uh, you get over it. You move on. And, and the love does not diminish. So that yeah. um, And then we always had as a primary value uh, to have pride in yourself and to respect each other and respect other people and to protect each other. So when I got that, yeah, no, that's great. Result, I mean, I could tell you some bad things, but I'm here and I'm as happy as I can be. And I know how I got here. Yeah. Um, you talked about, you know, your parents, you know, not always having the financial means, but clearly putting the structure and the right support in place for you to succeed. Um, Eventually, you know, when you finish high school, you go to college. Uh, I guess tell me, how did you um, how did you get into college? Um, where'd you go, and how'd you pay for it? Uh, getting into college was part of the the academic program I was in. I guess I started there. Started at home when, when my parents said you're going to go to college. Right. Um, first thing you have to do to go to college, you have to write a letter requesting admission. It was part of the requirement for the high school English class. So that was kind of like automatic. If you were a college preparatory student, you were in high school. At our high school, one of the things you had to do was send off at least five letters to five different colleges asking for admission. So, and you, of course, you had to pick what your goal is. My goal at the time was at first to be a pharmacist, and then my next goal was to, uh, to be a physical therapist. Um, I sent off these letters to all these crazy colleges, uh, University of Southern California, UCLA, University of Pennsylvania, Vermont Military Institute, and New York University. And I think I sent one to Westchester, which mm -hmm. was, a state, was a state teacher's college when I was a kid. My father wanted me to go to become a teacher, and he wanted me to become a teacher for economical reasons. Cheney State University was less than 30 miles away. That's where my aunt had gone to school. Um, and um, uh, something I, I think he was thinking he could afford. Uh, that was not me. I wanted to be difficult, I think. Um, so I sent off these letters and started getting responses, and I got accepted at New York University with a major in physical therapy, and I said, that's where I want to go. And so I started saving money, and uh, without really paying any attention to what it cost, uh, mm -hmm. I had saved $100, and I thought I was really doing something. Got this. <laughs> and then, yeah, when I found out what the tuition was, I told my mom I can't go. She says, you're going. Mm -hmm. so the day rolled around to go. She said, get in the car, get your $100, let's go. And she had made arrangements for me to go to New York to stay with some family friends in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, there was a young man my age who was the person I now call my college brother. Um, I had... His mother and father had the bedroom in their apartment, and he slept on the sofa. But when I went to New York, they gave up the bedroom. And he and I shared a bed, and they slept on the sofa. Wow. Um, they fed me, put a roof over my head, did not charge me a nickel. Um, mm. I had a place to bathe and a place to sleep, but it was not ideal for academic purposes. Mm -hmm. so that we started. And my mother, on the day of enrollment at NYU, 
with our $100 or the necessary $800 to pay the tuition, went into the bursar's office and worked her magic. And she hmm. told him, I'm leaving him here. Here's a hundred dollars. I'll send you the rest. And she got in the car and went home. <laughs> and she went home and did whatever she had to do to come up with that $800, uh, $700. And, and then the people that I was living with helped me find a job. In the meantime, yeah. the very same September, my brother who had become a basketball star was given a scholarship to play basketball at Morgan. So the two of us went off to college at the same time. So my mother and father were now almost empty nesters. They had three younger people at home who I know very little about because I spent very little time with them. I did my mm. 17 years at home and I never went back um, determined to make it on my own. And with my yeah. guidance and support and, and the support of other people that I met, um, we did that. I had a difficult academic first year and I was I mean, I was really, really blessed. Um, the very first day at New York U, I bumped into this man looking for the bursar's office, and the man happened to be the dean of students. He gave me his business mm -hmm. card. He said, I'm new here, so I can't help you. He said, I might be able to help you later. Here's my card. If you need me, make sure you call me. So I failed two classes. I went to the mm -hmm. dean of students, this gentleman that I had met. He sat down and gave me the best advice I'd ever been given academically. He says, you can do this work. You can't do it the way you're trying to do it. You, cannot work, you can't work 40 hours a week and go to school 32 hours a week and, and, and succeed. You're not that right. You're not the dullest bulb in the room, but you're not that bright. So he tipped me off and he says, you got to have the time management is basically what he did. So he taught me that. And um, I made up the two classes that I had failed. Um, which was an embarrassing lesson, but I survived, uh, saved up um, $800. Mm. And, um, I worked in the post office in New York. I worked in the garment district in New York, and I worked at a bank in New York. I saved up $100. I had an aunt that lived in Philadelphia, and Temple University's tuition was 50% of what I was paying at New York here. Uh, okay. Okay, so it wasn't the same academic program, but I'm still on the same track. I'm still going to the station that I picked for myself and uh, just using a detour. So I took the $800 and I paid one year's tuition so I didn't have to work. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I basically finished my undergraduate education at Temple. I have a master's in health education and I have um, all the coursework done for my doctorate. I just didn't write my dissertation. Yeah. I mean, that that's fantastic. And it's, it's thoughtful, right? I mean, so many students today, they're graduating with such a burden of debt um, for you to be able to figure out how to tackle that and, you know, figure out like, hey, this other place is going to be more value in the long term and not get you kind of caught out there. I mean, that's, that's both wise and it's still something very topical that a lot of students are trying to navigate today. Yes. It's very difficult today. I mean, I got two grown kids that... Have, um, I, I, I'm not sure where they are in paying off their student debt. Uh, I've got um, six grandchildren. Three of them have finished college. Um, and again, I didn't have to pay their tuition. Now I'm not sure where they are. But all students today have debt, unless you're exceptionally wealthy. And that's because yeah, most of the way the United States works, they, they figure out a way to make money by taking advantage of people. I mean, why why wouldn't why wouldn't the country want to educate its youth? And so exactly. So what they do is, and and you're getting ready to get a grim, grim announcement because now they can't fill the dormitories, and they got all these dormitory spaces that have to be filled, and somebody's got to pay that bill. Mm -hmm. The parents aren't going to want to pay the same tuition they were paying when the kids are standing at home looking at a computer. Yep, would be a, a rude awakening, but. Uh, instead of making it easy for people to get an education, the United States decided to make themselves rich. Some people decided to make themselves rich and make it more difficult. Um, they still only require 128 credits to get a bachelor's degree. I think it's 100. Mm. Same number of courses, same number of classroom hours. Right. Teachers aren't, the, the faculty members at the colleges aren't making that much more money. 
something's wrong with the picture. Yeah, the okay? math doesn't. So I got my bachelor's degree for a lot less than my kids at their bachelor's degree or my grandkids. Degree. In fact, my youngest granddaughter and grandson were 14 years old. My daughter and son-in-law are paying about fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year for them to get an education in private wow. schools. Yep. I mean, th- those numbers are bananas, um, and they're not um, so out of whack that people would say I've never heard anything like that. I mean, that so that's the the thing. The numbers are both big, and they've been normalized on some level, and uh, it's unfortunate. So as you um, have gone on this journey, you know, you, you figured out a way to navigate this, uh, get the right education. Um, you ended up as um, a, uh, a physical education um, uh, teacher. Tell me about your, your, your career. Um, you worked at a university. Where, where did you, uh, high school, where did you work? Well, my, my intent, I said, was to become a physical therapist. And I got a degree in physical education with the intent of going to the University of Pennsylvania and getting a certificate in physical therapy. That didn't happen. A lot of other things happening. I got married because after a while, you start figuring, you're always, I was always trying to figure out a way to pay the bill. And so I decided I was going to let the military pay for my graduate education. Okay. So, my, so my plan was, and, and there was a war going on at the same time. So I'm another Captain Bone Spurs, okay? Not really, but I mean, I, I wanted to get my education and then I was willing to go serve, okay? So I did what I could to avoid the draft. You have to maintain good grades. Um, I did that. Um, and then because I had, I fell in love, because I decided I was going to go into the military, I got married my senior year. I had no negative bearing on anything that I did after that. But that was just the way things fell in place. So I kept going to the military offices, uh, to the recruiters offering my services. And they kept, every time I went to... Um, one of their sessions, they would keep repeating this two-letter word that made me very uncomfortable. I'm an African-American. I'm desiring to go into military as an officer. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. desiring to go into military officers' training school, and they're not making me feel comfortable. So one day, I got in my car. Um, and getting a car is another interesting story, but I'll save that for later. But I got in my car, and I drove to Chester to the school district office. And mm-hmm. receptionist said, how can I help you? And I told her who I was and why I was there. And she said to me, uh, she looked to her left and she looked down the hall in the office and saw a gentleman whose name was Mr. Crawford. Mr. Crawford had been the cross country and track coach at Chester High School. He was mm-hmm. now out of the classroom and off of the field and in the management office. And so she said, go see Mr. Crawford. So I took my application resume with me, went to see Mr. Crawford. He looked up, he said, hey, Ron, how are you? What are you doing here? I'm looking for a job. He says, on September the 5th, you go to Dewey Man School. Just like that. Wow. Okay. So uh, he had an opening. He knew who I was. He took my resume, gave me an assignment. So I got in my car, went back to Philadelphia with a job. Never uttered the word if. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm comfortable. Now I have to reorganize my plans for the future. You become a teacher when you graduate in uh, Pennsylvania, you have to get 24 additional credits and get through several evaluations in order to get a permanent teaching certificate. So I set my goal on doing that. Um, And um, you had to get 24 credits and in order to have a master's degree, you had to get 30 credits. So instead of just taking classes for the sake of taking classes, I started working on my master's. So I went ahead and got my master's. In, um, in the meantime, I, I only taught at Chester for a year uh, because I wanted to make it convenient for myself since I was going to go to Temple to get my master's. I lived in Philadelphia. I moved my job to Philadelphia and started working for the Philadelphia school system. I came up and got it. In the system, when the system was segregated, I mean, black teachers were at the black schools, and white kids, white teachers were at the white schools. And you're in the same situation same. as when you grew up, yeah. Right, and so um, getting to management positions in the school system was difficult, and getting coaching jobs was difficult. I mean, a black 
physical education teacher really couldn't easily get a coaching job at a predominantly black school, high school in, in Philadelphia. Eventually, because of social pressures and demonstrations and protests and things of that nature, um, the city had to come to an agreement and they started assigning blacks. Uh, every basketball game, for example, would have one white official, one black official. They started allowing blacks to become head coaches in various sports in the high school level. Meantime, I'm teaching in junior high school and I'm happy as I can be. And a guy comes in my gym one day. I was supervising a um, student teacher from Temple. And his supervisor came into my gym and said, there's a job for you at the University of Pennsylvania. So what do you mean there's a job for you at the university, for me at the University of Pennsylvania? And so he says, there's a job down there, and I think you're a perfect fit. You ought to go apply for that job. So I said, okay, thank you very much. And I went back to teaching. Uh, he came in a couple of times and asked me if I had put my resume in, and I told him no. He says, you got to do this. So I get this guy off my back. I'll put in my application for this job. I got the job, and I got the job because the guy that was doing the hiring there was a guy who was a professor at Temple when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, And I got that job, and I was fortunate enough to leave public school education, which I had great experiences with, um, and go to the university and do some things I had never done before. They had created a recreation department. Um, because they had done away with their physical education requirement for graduation. And um, they had all of these facilities. They had three swimming pools. They had eight tennis courts. They had 18 squash courts. They had a track, um, artificial tartan track. They had AstroTurf Field. Um, we had a wrestling room, a dance studio. Um, it, it was just filled with equipment. And so the gentleman that hired me, Dr. Robert McCollum, had to create a program that made use of all these facilities that serviced the entire university family. And the university decided that the university family included all of the students, all of the employees at every level, and all of the alumni, the alumni, and all of their spouse and children. Mm. Basically totaling a possible user group that was about 25,000 people. Wow. So uh, we set up a program of uh, learning lifetime sports and offering them for a fee. And we kept the swimming pools open for recreational swimming all day, every day. Um, we opened the track for jogging and running practice. Um, we ran a national youth sports program. It was put together by the NCAA in uh, 1967, 68. Uh, they got 100, about 125 colleges across the country to agree to provide this summer program for disadvantaged kids. Um, and so I took advantage of that opportunity. To, that was my primary assignment. When I went there, I looked around and I saw I had all of these wonderful facilities. Um, and, and people said, well, you're going to have basketball um, three hours a day and you're going to have um, soccer a half hour a day. I said, no, 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 no. We're going to teach these kids everything but basketball. Hmm. Because when they go home, they go to the playground. What are they going to do? Okay. Right. They're going to recreate playing basketball. But I could teach them how to play squash I could teach them how to play tennis. I could teach them how to run. I could teach them how to do gymnastics. I could teach them to dance. And I could teach them to swim. So I made sure those children swam every day. Every day. Wow. No excuses. 400 kids, boys and girls from West Philadelphia, got in a University of Pennsylvania pool every day for six weeks. <clears throat> okay. Now, being responsible for all those pools and keeping those pools open all year round, seven days a week, we had a difficult time getting lifeguards. Ah. Okay, because the students who were our lifeguards, our primary source of lifeguards, would go home at Easter, they go home at spring break, they go home at Christmas. So I trained my own lifeguards. I had 400 kids at my disposal. I got my lifeguards from those 400 kids. Mm, smart. So I'm doing something else. I'm finding 
showing those kids they have an opportunity for employment by making them have a, giving them a motivation to learn to swim and showing that they can be employees of the university. It's right across the street from their house. Okay. But I had these things at my disposal and I'll tell you, I was 21 years old when I learned to swim because the nearest to me for swimming was a river. It was dirty. Uh-huh. Two blocks from the Delaware River, I was not allowed to go in it. In the park, there was a creek, and I was not allowed to go in it. My YMCA did not have a pool, nor did any of my schools. The only place African-Americans could swim at the time when I was a kid was at the YMCA, and they gave us Friday. Huh. Okay, so I didn't learn to swim until I was compelled to learn to swim to get my degree. It wasn't going to happen to my 400 kids. Yeah. You said something that I want to tie back to to today because we we talked about two different things. One, you know, kind of this ever increasing, as it seems, cost of a of a college education, and we know that it's um, sometimes these amenities uh, that uh, schools have to pay for. At the same time, you were thoughtful enough to make sure that um, folks were actually using these facilities, not just as kind of these playthings, but to um, really get, you know, um, get exercise to, to be more thoughtful. Well, the, the universe, you know, in order to get a degree from Penn, initially, everybody had to be able to swim. So they needed those three swimming pools. Their entire student body had to swim. But when they removed the requirement, and they also used to have a degree program in physical education. So when they removed the degree program and they removed the requirement to learn to swim, they had to do something with all of those facilities. They couldn't get rid of them because they had an athletic program that needed them as well. So um, I was just motivated to use them and to give these kids an opportunity that no one had ever talked to me about. I had no idea what squash was until I became director of the recreation department. So I had it at my disposal, I controlled the schedule, the staffing. I used it. Why do you think more students today um, in college don't have that type of, of uh, experience? I mean, I, I, I've spoken to folks where, you know, they, they say their physical education or whatever they call it. Um, it's kind of this checkbox class, right? They don't really well, do they, much. What, what's happening? It's instead? not required, Sean. It's not required. It, that's what I said. Penn dropped the requirement. They, Everybody had to take it to get a degree. Now it's not required anymore. But people want- Why do you think that happened? You know, when budget crunches hit the academic environment, the first thing they do is cut out things that are not English, history, and mathematics. Um, that's basically what happened, okay? But I mean, what I wanted to say is out of that program and having that opportunity to teach these kids, I'm learning too. I'm learning about these facilities and what people can do with them. Okay, and it 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 helped me make connections with a United States senator that became Mm -hmm. invaluable to getting funding for that nationwide program. Arlen Specter was a squash player. He was Mm -hmm. a Penn alum. I established a relationship with him. And every time the appropriations from Washington got shaky, I could go to Arlen and say, I need your help. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a young man today is the general counsel for Morehouse Medical College. Learned to run track, ran track in college, okay? Learned to play squash, challenged some of his white friends to play squash who were quite surprised. I've got another young man, we taught him to run track in this program. He is a dentist in West Philadelphia. Not only did he go learn to run track in the Penn program, He came to Penn and ran track on the Penn track team and went to the Penn Dental School. Okay, And I say that because I want people to know that these colleges can be doing a lot more and getting a lot more benefit out of what they can do if they would go back to doing it. Okay. Yeah. If they would go back to doing it. Um, and that's adding so much more value to the entire experience. Uh, It just seems silly. Not It enhances the entire community. John Drummond, Mm -hmm. John Drummond, an Olympic sprinter, came to my program when he was 10 years old. We taught him how to run. He's got gold medals. He lives in West Philly. 
maybe 20, 30 blocks from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. You never hear Penn talking about it. <clears throat> okay. But if you tell kid, if, if you were in Philadelphia and, and you were Penn and you still had that program going, it might be an inspiration to the kids in the neighborhood. It, those things that happened in the 60s and, and, and 70s, <clears throat> excuse me, that were developing these relationships between these institutions and the community that have been allowed to die, if they were forced to continue, might have prevented the past three months. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a, and for me, it was just the the environment that, that I mean, I got this interest, this desire, this motivation came from my parents, um, and so I did what I could. Now I went went from being teacher to being a recreation director at Penn to having the mayor of the city of Philadelphia offer me a job, become a deputy recreation commissioner, which is just a bigger job. Now I'm truly running recreation for an entire city. So the, the mayor called me in his office. He said, the manager at the stadium is leaving. He's going to take a job in Los Angeles. And I, I don't not have anybody else I can think of that I can send down there. So I want you to go back to your office and pack up your stuff, call the manager, tell him you're going to come down and you're going to be running the stadium and meet him as soon as he starts on Monday morning. Uh, we'll give you a try. So um, he assigned me to run Veteran Stadium in Philadelphia. Um, there have never been more than five African-Americans in the United States to run stadiums used by professional baseball or professional football teams. I am one of them. Um, and so I ran the stadium for five and a half years until the mayor's term ended. During that time, I had an opportunity to um, meet with people from FIFA uh, because the city had put in an application for World Cup soccer in 1994. Um, in 1992, I was out of a job. Um, but I had this FIFA connection in my resume. Uh, started looking for a job, found a job uh, that I was interested in at Cal State Fullerton in Fullerton, California. They looked at my resume, offered me an interview, and I found out that they were interested in me because I had indicated that I had interacted with FIFA and they were interested in hosting one of the practice or being a practice facility for the 1994 World Cup in Los Angeles. So that's the connection. It helped me get the job and I became director of the sports complex at Cal State Fullerton in 1994. Uh, by this time I was 55 years old. It was a difficult move to pack up and go across the country at that age. Um, but uh, God knows what's going on and, and, and keeps you on the right path if you follow. So <clears throat> I went out there uh, for five years and found a job back here in Philly. And uh, all my jobs were connected and made use of every prior experience, every one of them. None of, none of my working experiences were a waste. Um, and um, so I came back and I was a project manager for a project that failed, um, which was unfortunate for the project, but fortunate for me, because it got me a job back home. Uh, and then when they decided that they were going to drop the project, I was at retirement age. So, yeah. So I spend my time now serving on boards uh, and, and trying to make uh, life better for the people around me. No, that's fantastic. I mean, I imagine this crammed house with your brothers, your parents, and your uncle. You guys are running up and down the stairs, dribbling in the alley, you know, uh, having your having your dinners. And all of that um, to kind of culminate to this person who is running uh, these facilities, operating these facilities. Uh, it's a kind of really cool journey. It, it, it was amazing to me um, because, I mean, it was like I'm going down a blind alley. I had no idea that there was a job as a college recreation director. And right. in fact, they didn't, I don't think they had many college recreation directors in, in 1970. I think that that's a new profession that came out of changes in the academic environment. Um, I had no thought about, in fact, I had made up my mind. I did not want to get involved in being a political political uh, appointee. 
because of mm-hmm. an experience my father had um, when I was trying to avoid being involved in politics. But the offer was exciting, and I took the chance. I have no regrets. Mm-hmm. Was it easy? Very difficult. Racially, very difficult. Um, because the, the culture, you know, was not used to some things. Uh, and uh, it opened, I had no idea there was a professional position called stadium manager. And I had right. no idea what kind of life they led. Okay. And it was absolutely amazing. I mean, I'm signing contracts with the Grateful Dead. Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah, because you have all this live I'm entertainment I'm as well. I'm signing contracts with the Rolling Stone. Okay. And I'm dealing with the Phillies and the Eagles. I'm signing contracts with them and, and concessionaires. One of, the, one of the blessings about being at Penn was I was fortunate enough one day to take a course in business law. <laughs> that's appropriate. Wasted experiences. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, b- before I let you go, I, I got to have a callback to this uh, thing you mentioned about buying this car. All right, what was it about buying this car um, that was notable? I mean, I wish everybody could be as blessed as I was. This is, the school was a struggle. I mean, I had to work. So I'm in class one day uh, at Temple. The gentleman who was older than me, I was 21, 22. All the rest of the kids were 17, 18 years old. So I'm an old guy. Uh, and, you know, I'm a phys ed major. I got to climb the ropes and do the horizontal bars and the parallel bars. Uh, they're younger than me. And not only that, I had never been exposed to that in right. high school. I went to an African-American school, in junior high school, and our high school was a basketball high school. You go to our mm-hmm. high school. What we did in my gym class in high school was basketball, baseball, football, and, and, and track. I mean, we never played, never put up the volleyball nets. Okay. So, oh. um, we, um, I, I meet this guy and he is older than I am. He's like in his thirties. So we're the old guys. We commiserate. Okay. At the yeah. end of class one day, he walks up to me and says, Hey Ron, you got a summer job? I said, no. He said, do you want one? I said, of course I do. He said, you got to have a car. I said, if I had a car, I probably would not need a job. <laughs> I said, well, I want you to work for me and need a car. So he sent me to a car dealer who had called in advance. The salesman said to me, is that row of cars out there? Go pick one. Hmm. My friend Bob Gould paid for that car and took took the payments out of my salary. Hmm. He gave me a summer job every summer for the next six years. Goodness. Okay. That's pretty cool. And in addition to that, that summer job is the job. He he, told, he called me up one day and he says, I want you to go to Holland, PA and pick up Bob McCollum. Bob McCollum was a professor at Temple. Bob's, ah. Bob's going to work with us at camp. Mm-hmm. So we worked at camp together. Bob McCollum is the guy that hired me to work at the University of Pennsylvania. It all connects. I mean, it's it just, I'm just truly blessed. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic story. I, I appreciate you sharing the whole journey with us. Um, what would you, uh, as we're wrapping up, you know, from all those experiences, what's the message you would leave with the world to our audience? I, I think the most important thing is to be the best person you can be and be kind and loving and supportive of other people because you get what you give. And then you have to be determined and, and, um, and make up your mind that you're going to succeed at being whatever it is you wish to succeed at. Um, it, it is not easy. I can, I mean, I can, I can spend twice as much time telling you about some difficulties in all of those experiences. Some that are exciting. Some I sit and laugh about. Um, I mean, I, I was running the stadium during the football strike when the when mm. strike it's a yeah. tough time. Um, so, and, and you got to stay focused. Okay. And not only that, you got to recognize that you don't know who your savior is. 
you don't know. I mean, I had no idea who Bob Gould was. Uh, he was a classmate. Okay, I had no idea when I resisted to drive up to Holland to pick up Bob McCollum that he was going to be the guy that hired me for an important career change in my life. Right. I had no idea, although I knew Mayor Good before he became the mayor, I had no idea he was going to hire me one day. And I certainly had no idea that he was going to take the risk with me and send me to run the crown jewel of the city of Philadelphia. Okay? And I, say, I mean, mm. so you got to have hope. you got to stay focused. you got to put forth your best effort um, to succeed. Okay? Keep your eyes and ears open and always continue to learn um, and, and, and to share. It's been, it's been wonderful. That's I also, well, Ron, I also want because okay. um, I had a discussion with a coach a couple of days ago who was on a Facebook tirade using a lot of profanity. I want to be an example. I want young people to be just like me. Well, Ron, thanks again for joining us, sharing your story. It really was fantastic. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and joining us to, to listen to our conversation with Ronald Bond. Um, it was a great conversation to hear both the journey and some of those uh, um, kind of resilient moments. We hope you've enjoyed us. If you have any comments or suggestions, as usual, please reach out at hello at truevoice.com. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.